Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. For 39 years, investigators have been trying to figure out exactly what happened to two young women whose bodies were found near Breckenridge. It's hard not to recognize what an incredible story this is. January 6, 1982. Snow is blowing sideways in Breckenridge, Colorado. And Clear Creek County Fire Chief Dave Montoya is getting ready for work when he gets a call on his radio. Dispatch called and said they had a call from a sheriff up there in the sky that said he saw SOS lights flashing on top of Cornell Pass. Wanted to know if anybody could check it out. Uh, Midnight, there was really nobody around. The sheriffs weren't around. So I said, look, I'm here now and I got my truck. So let me go see before you wake everybody up and see what it is. And uh, my marshal from the Empire, he said, I'll join you up there. He says, go ahead on up and I'll meet you at the bottom. We'll, we'll see what's what and we'll make a little report. I said, okay. But let's back up before Dave Montoya got that call. So it was an SOS coming from the headlights of a truck stuck in the snow at the top of Guanella Pass, where it was 22 below zero and snowing hard that night. But how that SOS signal was picked up? Well, it seems almost unbelievable. Then and now, Matt Jablo is a reporter at KUSA 9 in Denver. And it just so happened that his car was on an incline. It was facing up and the headlights were pointed towards the sky. And at the instant that he flashed his SOS signal, a United flight, which was heading from Denver to California, crossed Guanella Pass. And on that flight was the Jefferson County Sheriff at the time, who happened to be looking out the window, recognized the SOS signal, alerted the flight crew, they called down. That's why I got a hold of uh, dispatch. So I'll go up there and see what's what. So I went up there and about that time, the snow really started coming back. And I got up there at the top and sure as heck, there he was in his little pickup with the little exhaust going out. And he saw me and he freaked out. He said, ah, God, I'm saved. I pulled up and he jumped out of the truck, jumped in my truck. And he says, man, am I glad to see you? I said, what the hell are you doing up here? And I recognized him. I knew who he was. And I said, what are you doing up here? This is why I got drunk and I decided to go home. And I said, you came up over the pass? He says, yeah, well, it seemed like a good idea. So from the top of Guanella Pass to a United flight in the sky, back to Dave Montoya on the ground, and then back up the mountain pass. Even the direction of the truck's headlights made a difference in the rescue. He said it was the craziest thing he's ever been involved in. You know, the the coincidence that, that all these things happened to come together, that the guy flashed the SOS signal. First of all, that he knew how to flash an SOS signal, that a plane happened to be going overhead, that the sheriff happened to be looking... Uh, out the window at the time, that the rescue came together, and that Montoya was able to get to the top of Guanella Pass in the middle of this blizzard. Montoya said it was just the most incredible thing he's ever experienced. 
And I said, you are really lucky. I says, if you would have left, been left flat and tried to flash those signals, nobody would have seen you because your headlights are going to be going right to the mountain. You're not, nobody's going to see that at all. I said, but you had the headlights up in the air and he happened to see it. And he also happened to know how to flash an SOS. Yeah, well, the mountain guys, you know, we all, that's standard procedure. Everybody, that's part of your survival up here. You know how to do SOS. You know how to build out a, a fire and keep something with you, you know, so you don't die. But, uh, so he knew. And then uh, he just happened to get lucky that sheriff was there at that time on that plane and was able to talk to the pilot. And the man rescued that night was 30-year-old Alan Phillips. He said he seemed a little drunk. Uh, Phillips said he had been drinking, was heading home. But he said, other than the fact that the whole situation was unusual, he said there was nothing um, more unusual about um, Phillips' behavior. He said he seemed pretty calm. How did he seem to you in general? Really happy to see me. He, was, he wasn't uh, nervous. You know, just really happy to see me and stuff. And the fact that he was hurting a little bit. Um, he wasn't armed. There were no weapons on him. That's the first thing I noticed when I pick up anybody, you know, take out a, a weapon on him. And he had, at that time, I, I couldn't tell him he didn't have any. He had the coat on and stuff. But since I knew him, I would, really wasn't alarmed, you know. So I said, okay, I'll take you back home and uh, report that uh, no medical was thing and you probably won't have any contact with anybody. I said, you're going to have to figure out a way to get your truck down yourself. He said, okay, I got that covered. Um, he also did say that he had a rather significant bruise or gash um, near one of his eyes. I said, okay. So I said, so what happened to your eyes? He says, well, I... I lost eyes. This is when the plane passed over, it was clear and everything. He says, I didn't know he saw me. I was going to try and walk out. And I said, okay, so what happened? He said, well, the snow came back and it blinded me. I couldn't see the road and I couldn't see my pickup. So I started walking around in circles, he says, you know, to try to find the truck because he was up in that little parking area. Well, he found the truck, he said, face first. He said he ran into the corner of the cab. So <laughs> after he got himself up, he went back into the truck and he waited to see if anybody was gonna come. I came up about maybe 10 minutes later because he was, the wound was still fresh. Montoya says, looking back now, seems, uh, seems like an odd story, but at the time uh, he believed them. He said, Montoya said he asked Phillips if he wanted medical care, he declined, he did not want medical care. I says, well, you're a little bit drunk and everything. I said, you, you don't want me to check you out? I said, I'll fix you up and take you back to the house or take you down to 501 and they can take a look at you. He said, no, I'm good. I'm ready to go. I got to go to work in the morning. And I said, okay. So he had the same shift I did. I said, okay, it's your call. So I dropped him off at the intersection of uh, Georgetown exit and I-70 and he lived up the trader houses at that time and he walked up. I said, I'll take you up to the house. He said, no, you have to back out. I'm short. I said, okay, see ya. And that was it. Alan Phillips was safe at home. Rescue mission complete. I, I thought it was, I thought I said, how in the heck did this guy get so lucky to have all that stuff fall into place? I was there, the sheriff was there, the pilot, that fact that the pilot, hey, we're able to get access to the pilot to report anything, you know? So um, uh, that's, that's how that all went down. Um, I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard of. I says, 
How, why would anybody be so stupid to try to go over the past? Because he lived there, so he knew what was happening with the past. And did you ever talk about that incident again? No, we never did, and I never saw him again after that. As it turns out, something else happened on that January day back in 1982. Something much darker. Something that would haunt the community for decades. Two young women, 22-year-old Annette Schnee and 29-year-old Barbara Oberholzer, disappeared um, heading home from Breckenridge. Both of them were working in town. They were hitchhiking home, and they disappeared. One was last seen around 4 in the afternoon. The other was last seen around 7 at night. For two women, simply to vanish from the ski resort town without a trace was unheard of. Hitchhiking home was pretty common for a lot of younger people at the time. Um, Breckenridge was and is a very low crime area, so it didn't seem unusual um, or um, ill-advised for them to be doing it. 22-year-old Annette Schnee and 29-year-old Barbara Oberholzer did not appear to know one another. But what happened on that snowy winter day back in 1982 would forever bind them together. The next day, January 7th, a body was found. One of their bodies was found the next day, and one of their bodies wasn't found until six months later. And their personal belongings were scattered uh, in, their bodies were found in remote areas outside of town, as were their personal belongings, which were scattered uh, throughout town. They'd both been shot to death before their bodies were abandoned, both in separate locations, but not too far from Guanella Pass, where Alan Phillips was later rescued that night. They were in separate areas. One was found uh, near Hoosier Pass, and one was found uh, south of Breckenridge, both probably about mm, 20, 25 miles from Breckenridge, but not that close to each other. The murders understandably shocked the community, two seemingly random murders without any leads or suspects. This was, as they say, shocking for Breckenridge at the time. It would be shocking for Breckenridge now, um, it has been for years a very popular high-end uh, ski resort uh, town in Colorado, and stuff like this has just not happened there uh, on any kind of regular basis, if ever, a double murder quite like this. And for years and then decades, both murders would go unsolved. But as is so often the case in unsolved murders like these, there was an investigative team dedicated to solving the cases, and one man in particular who never let go. I spoke with a retired Denver police homicide detective, a guy named Charlie McCormick, who retired to uh, Breckenridge in 1976 from Denver. Um, he told me he was burned out on homicide cases. He said they were too stressful. He was done with them. And then six years after he moved to Breckenridge, this happened. And something about the case, the unusualness of it, the brutality of it, the sadness of it, um, caught his interest. And he began working on the case on a volunteer basis a few years after the murders. Um, and he worked on the case on a volunteer basis for 32 years. But for most of those 32 years, there wasn't a lot of movement in the case, at least as far as anyone outside of the investigation was concerned. But behind the scenes, there was hope. And it was all due to breakthroughs that have become almost commonplace in crime investigations today. DNA, genetic genealogy. Um, you know, they had been all over this uh, Rocky Mountain region and beyond. They had been, they'd searched for 
suspects in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, I believe. Um, and then at the beginning of the, of the case, and then uh, DNA, the advent of DNA. Um, and they had a DNA sample from one of the victims, from one of the crime scenes, I should say. And uh, they began working the case hard. And then in the last, just earlier this year, um, they got a big break in the case with DNA, specifically from genetic genealogy, which um, is a process increasingly popular and has already solved several big cold cases in Colorado. It's a process that combines DNA testing with a thorough look at a person's family history. So it's uh, sort of uh, DNA testing meets Ancestry.com. Literally, that's how they do it. Earlier this year, an arrest was made. The suspect's name, Alan Lee Phillips. For decades, so many wondered who killed them. Some may have long forgotten. Investigators did not. And today, the Park County Sheriff announced an arrest. Investigators say DNA testing is once again responsible for heating up a very cold case. And as a result, a 70-year-old man is now behind bars. So day after day after day for 32 years, bingo. It's, it's all, or at least there's an arrest. I cannot begin to understand the pain and sufferings their families have had to face for nearly four decades. While they were not together at the time of their disappearance, they are forever connected through the suspect who allegedly took their lives. On February 24th, we arrested Alan Lee Phillips. Alan Phillips, stranded motorist from that January night back in 1982, now 70 years old. It's a relief to have this done and to have an arrest and give closure to families. Because these cases, get into you, and you can't let it go. He's a semi-retired mechanic who apparently never left the area after allegedly killing the hitchhikers decades ago. And we have some incredible new details about the man accused of killing two young women in Breckenridge back in 1982. Two months ago, prosecutors charged 70-year-old Alan Phillips, who you see right there. They believe he shot and killed 22-year-old Annette Schnee and 29-year-old Barbara Oberholzer, then dumped their bodies in a remote area outside of town. Investigators say over the past 39 years, they looked at numerous suspects in several states and one other country. But we've now learned that Phillips never left Colorado and had been living in DeMont since 2008, only about an hour from Breckenridge. If I had done something like that, I'd be long gone. Um, but uh, in this case, it didn't appear to be the case. His home was, is right behind a very popular uh, rest stop off of I-70 in Dumont, Colorado. So you might say he was hiding in plain sight for 39 years. As far as we can tell, he had never been arrested um, after the murders. So he was living what appeared to be a rather ordinary life uh, in Dumont, Colorado, as I said, right behind this very popular rest stop um, off of I-70, which anybody's, any, anybody's skied for any length of time in Colorado, has seen that rest stop a hundred times and probably stopped there themselves. And Alan Phillips lived right behind it. Despite the news of the arrest, there are still few details about the murders and the evidence or what those two young victims experienced on that January day. I have been told that one was clearly not sexually assaulted and one may have been. We do not have a motive. At least one has not been given yet. The affidavit in the case is still sealed. 
The preliminary hearing in the case is scheduled for September 13th. So prosecutors and uh, the sheriff's department, the Park County Sheriff's Department, um, they've they've been extremely tight-lipped about the entire case. I think one, I believe, one working theory is uh, that um, Phillips killed the two women, was out um, dumping their bodies and scattering their personal belongings, and tried driving home and got stuck at the top of Guinella Pass. And as with any case that involves two murders, a span of decades, and then an arrest, there are questions about whether Alan Phillips could be tied to other cases. There is reason to believe that he could be connected to other crimes, and investigators, uh, without tipping their hand, have made it very clear that they would like anybody with information about Alan Phillips and anything he's done for the last 39 years Uh, they would like for them to contact investigators. So I would say it's fair to say he is being looked at um, for other possible crimes. While both Alan's rescue and the murder of two young women got a lot of attention at the time, there was never any talk of any connection back then or even in recent years as detectives honed in on Alan Phillips. Dave Montoya, the man who rescued Phillips that night, didn't make the connection until he saw the news of the arrest. He hadn't heard about him or seen him since he rescued him from the top of the mountain. And he sees him on television. And he's like, oh, my goodness. What went through your mind when you heard that he'd been arrested for these two murders? And I said, uh, I thought, kind of, I said, kind of makes sense about his circumstances up there. The thing that, that pissed me off about the whole thing when I talked to Charlie is that that means this little twerp used us. He used us. He used his, the community he lived in to save his ass after he did the deed. So if that's the case, then that makes him a very bad person. Montoya wonders today about what prompted Phillips to head to the mountain pass that night. Maybe an attempt to ditch any evidence from his alleged crimes. If he was getting nervous and they started dumping things as he was going along and got caught up there and stuck, that means there still might be stuff up there, okay? Because even if he got the truck out of there, there would be no way for him to go down and check and see what's what because of all the amount of snow. So he was stuck along with us along with everybody else. So he probably thought everything was good. He never heard anything about it. It's a crazy story. It's been a long time since I've covered one with so many twists and turns and dips and... It, this one really has been uh, just a, you know, it's got a roller coaster ride of a plot line, and, and and we'll see where it goes. I am told that there are still a few more twists in the plot that will be revealed uh, if and when the affidavit is released, or at the very least, uh, very latest, when the trial starts. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman, as always. And 
you know, guys, there's a lot of elements to this story. We sort of start off with the story of the rescue and end with this, you know, the, the DNA evidence finally leading to a suspect who's been charged uh, with these murders. Uh, so it's been a case that has baffled investigators for a long time. Um, I, I think the most miraculous, if, if outside of the, the DNA part of it all, is, the, is this mountain rescue that took place. This guy, Dave Montoya, who didn't know who he was dealing with at the time. I mean, what'd you think of that? The fact that like he flashed an SOS and a plane flying overhead happened to have a sheriff on board who saw that happening. It's just all kind of crazy. Yeah, well, I, I just can't get over how lucky this guy, Alan Lee Phillips, got back in 1982 that, as you mentioned, he knew how to flash the signal, that somebody saw it, that the person who happened to see it knew what it was. And then on top of all that, that he went 39 years before being connected to these two homicides that occurred right around the same time. Well, the question is, was he lucky though, Reed, because someone else recognized him? But I was going to say some co- some context to this. You got to remember, this was at 10,000 feet too. The mountain pass that he was at actually at was at 10,000 feet. I don't even know how a plane flies in storm conditions, sub-zero storm conditions um, at that kind of elevation. It's unbelievable. Well, right. So wherever the plane was, I, I was thinking about this, like if it was another 10,000 feet or more above that mountain pass, the fact that, yeah, there's a snowstorm and the SOS signal was visible <laughs> From the plane, it, it all just sort of boggles the mind. And the fact that then this sheriff goes and finds the pilot who radios down. I don't, I don't know if you could do all that these days. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if an SOS signal was was spotted. But I don't know. Maybe like the storm conditions allowed for the lights to reflect more. I mean, I'm just completely guessing here because it just seems literally almost impossible that this happened. But apparently it did. Will, I wanted to ask, uh, this, this case is, is coming, it, it almost was 40 years between, you know, when these two women were killed and, and when this case was solved. Were there any other suspects during those decades? Yes. For many years, Barbara Oberholzer's husband, Jeff, was considered a suspect or at least strongly looked at in connection with these cases. Uh, he uh, had an alibi that didn't really pan out until many years later. He had said he had been with someone, but it, it didn't totally check out. And so he was definitely being looked at uh, for many years. He always claimed he had nothing to do with it. He said goodbye. Um, I believe that morning to Barbara, she went off to work. And in fact, she hitchhiked to work, uh, called later that day, said she was going to get home, uh, maybe go out uh, after work and would hitchhike home. So, you know, he, he claimed he had nothing to do with it. Apparently didn't uh, because the DNA evidence has definitely led to this uh, this other suspect. And Will, just just one point of clarification. I know the bodies of Barbara Jo Oberholzer and Annette Schnee were found about six months apart, uh, but they were abducted on on the same night. They weren't abducted together on that night, right? No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, they were hitchhiking at you know different times. You know, it might have been within the same time span, within uh, clearly the same day, but they were not you know, hitchhiking or together. I will say that that goes back to uh, the investigation and uh, Barbara's husband, Jeff. He apparently claimed that he knew Annette Schnee or at least had met her once and had given her a business card, perhaps on that day, because I, I believe I've read that when her body was found, his business card was found with her body. So that was just another thing that sort of complicated this whole investigation. It might have pointed some investigators or the investigation at, at, Barbara's husband. Um, but again, to answer your question, Reed, they were traveling separately 
on that day. And uh, the suspect in this case, if these cases are connected, and it turns out that, you know, he did both of these. He picked up one, shot, killed her, and then picked up another uh, on the same day before this whole rescue scenario plays out later that night, you know, almost closer to midnight. And as you talked about, it was DNA and genetic genealogy that led up to this arrest. Do we know what was the actual piece of evidence that investigators were able to collect that DNA off of? From what I've learned about the case, they had DNA from a glove that Barbara or Bobby, as she was known, was wearing, uh, also some tissues with her backpack. And for a long time, they believed that DNA belonged to her. Technology has improved. They've determined that it belonged to a male, and then that's what led into you know the genetic genealogy finally leading to uh, an actual suspect. This case, I mean, being 39 years old, I think it really is a reminder that every single time we cover an unsolved homicide, there's a killer out there, and you know, it really makes you think all these developments related to DNA testing and, and genetic genealogy, they probably got to be making a, a lot of those killers pretty nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think that every time. And then, and then the other thing that always comes up with these cases is something like this happens, and you know, there is clearly uh, interest in this guy over all these years. You know, you hear it over and over again. Just led a normal life, had some kids. I think he adopted some kids. We mentioned, um, and so you know, yeah, here's someone who who never left the area, stuck around, and lo and behold, genetic genealogy has led back to him being named as a suspect and charged with these crimes. So, all right, so we'll keep our listeners posted on uh, what happens with this case uh, with the suspect who's now you know, behind bars and charged with these murders. And uh, Spencer, now's a great time, as always, to mention our Facebook group. If anybody has just joined uh, the podcast and they'd like to uh, learn more about us and what we're doing, they can check us out there. You're right. Uh, we have a great uh, Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. Uh, like I said, you can find it on Facebook and there you can talk about this case and other cases uh, that we have covered and other cases that maybe uh, you're interested in uh, with other like-minded true crime fans. And uh, for True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.